Welcome to the podcast of the Renew Community. We strive to be a Jesus community who cares about the things Jesus cares about. This podcast was recorded at our last gathering. Teaching like this is how we worship together every other week. We look to the scriptures seeking to become more like Christ. We're glad you're listening. Last Sunday, we kicked off a series called The Real Good News. Um, And what we believe is that Jesus is the vital center of that real good news. And this morning, I, yeah, I'm just excited for the people who are going to be sharing their, for lack of a better word, favorite story of Jesus. Uh, And I hope that what we'll see as they share is that Jesus was real good news when he was walking the earth and that he's still real good news today. Um, So yeah, please give your attention to our teachers this morning and I'll invite Aubrey up. I was really nervous that the stand wouldn't come up because I'm not very good at technology. Not that this is technology, but... And then the mic. I was nervous about the mic. I don't like mics, but it's, a, it's good. <laughs> so if you have your Bible, if you please turn to Mark 5, 21 through 43. It'll also be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. And there's some Bibles back there, too, if you want to. So when Ben asked us our favorite story about Jesus, my mind went immediately to these verses. We often are drawn to characters in movies or books that we can relate to in somehow, or possibly characters who we wish to be more like. I guess I'm slightly hesitant in sharing these verses and the reasons why this unnamed woman in this story is my favorite story of Jesus. Sharing this may reveal some traits within me that I don't like very well and would rather not expose, such as timidity and shame. Brene Brown, you may have heard of her. She's a social worker, author, researcher, and professor. She's been an advocate in stirring up words such as vulnerability and shame. She has also been a good resource in providing healthy, good ways to address these. These concepts, however, are not new, as we will see in this story, though the language we use to convey these ideas may have changed. I originally thought that the title of this section in Mark that we'll be reading could be titled A A Resurrection Story Within a Resurrection Story. And I believe that's still a good title. But as I kept thinking about it, I thought a possible better title of this section could be called Two Daughters. Hopefully these two titles will make sense as we read through these verses. You can also find this story in Matthew 9 and Luke 8 but we'll read through the passage in Mark, reading a few verses at a time and then taking time to reflect. So verses 21 through 24, if you have your Bible, or it'll be up here. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she can be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. So who do we have here? We have Jairus, a named synagogue leader of great importance. Yet he is experiencing a crisis. His only daughter, who's about 12 years of age, is dying. He has heard of this man, Jesus, and finds him. As you can imagine, given the circumstance of his daughter dying, Jairus pleads earnestly and then asks Jesus to come to his house and put his hands on on this daughter. Jairus believes that Jesus' touch this tangible element of hands on skin will heal and save his daughter. So let's keep reading in verses 25 through 29. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. 
and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, and in the midst of this jostling crowd, an unnamed woman touches the hem of his robe. The passage states that this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. And we've seen that number before, 12. Do you remember? Jairus' daughter is 12, so I just thought that was interesting. She has been bleeding for as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. She's been hemorrhaging, a menstrual cycle that is not what gynecologists today would say would be healthy or normal. Both Mark and Luke, in their telling of the story, make it sound as if there's nothing to be done for her, and so this would be considered a chronic condition. This unnamed woman has spent much of her time, energy, and resources to get well, but has not seen improvement. Some versions state that she has been treated badly in her quest for wellness. So in summary, she is a woman, she is an outcast, she is unclean, she's not married, she's isolated, and she has not had an advocate for her as she has been unjustly treated. So the verse says that she slips in from behind, touches the hem of Jesus' robe, and is immediately healed. This is a very courageous act, but let's keep reading for an even more courageous act. Verses 30 through 32. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing that what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. So Jesus felt the power discharge from him. I have to say that that, that word power stands out for me. I have to be honest and share that I slightly cringe when I hear the word power. I don't have to share the political and cultural context in which we live today. Can you imagine what the word power meant during that time frame in which that unnamed woman lived? Men had the power. The rulers had the power and the Romans had the final say. One needed only to look at the skyline to see the crosses, the instruments of death, to show that the Romans had the ultimate power, or at least it seemed that way. So it makes sense that this unnamed woman has reasons to be fearful of power. And Jesus doesn't let his question go without an answer. He knows there is something important happening while walking through that crowd. And he doesn't want to miss out on the important event. So he continues to look around to see who touched him. So this unnamed woman has been healed immediately, secretly. But this is not the end of her healing or even the end of her resurrection. I think there are two parts of her healing, the immediate healing of her condition, but then the chance, if she chooses, of the resurrection of her dignity and soul. How does this happen? This unnamed woman is presented with a very stressful situation. She has, if we can say, been caught, as Jesus asked multiple times who has touched him. And she is not sure how Jesus will respond to her if she admits what she has done. What are the immediate responses to stress? I'm sure if you've heard of the three main ones, fight, flight, or freeze. We might fight, yell back, defend ourselves. 
We might even physically respond. We might run away, we might avoid, withdraw. We might freeze, which is not engage, ignore. The extreme of that would be to disassociate. So this unnamed woman has a choice to make, which I think is the second part of her healing. Will she speak up? Will she run away? Will she try to defend herself? Will she stand frozen? Will she hope the situation goes away? This woman comes out of her frozen state and despite her trembling, find the, finds the courage to speak up and to tell the whole truth to Jesus and anyone in the crowd who may have stopped to listen. A few weeks ago, I shared my story with some of the elders here at Renew of when and how I decided to follow Jesus. There are some strong emotions as well as intense situations in my past. Due to these circumstances, I myself have experienced anxiety, shame, depression, isolation. And even today, though milder in my past, depression, anxiety, and shame can still pitch their tents in close proximity to my daily activities. So after sharing my story with the elders, I felt very vulnerable, open, and exposed. And I almost felt that I probably shouldn't have shared. That evening, I went home feeling off. I felt restless, irritable, and believing that I should probably avoid the elders for a while. So I chatted with my husband. Well, I say that my husband listens very well. So I did all the talking, and like a good husband, he did all the listening. And I also journaled how I was feeling. That next day, I talked with my therapist, who reminded me of the unwarranted shame I was feeling and how I often respond when I feel stressed which is I run away, I flee, I withdraw. And this is why I keep coming back to this unnamed woman and what she decides to do when she is facing a stressful situation. This unnamed woman who decides that she is unable to stay hidden any longer, taps into the courage that she has and speaks up, shares, and she tells the whole truth. But I love even more how Jesus responds to her. So in verse 34, Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus uses his power to stop and listen to her. He doesn't force her to share. He merely creates space and thus an invitation in which this unnamed woman chooses to share. Jesus gives this unnamed woman dignity, a choice, healing, and a name. And what name does he give her? Daughter. He renames her daughter. Which reminds me that Jarius is very eager to get to his own daughter so Jesus can heal her. So what happens with Jarius' daughter? While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jarius, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Can you imagine the overwhelming emotions and shock that Jairus is feeling in hearing that his daughter is dead? But what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. Jesus did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they, when they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. 
he took her by the hand and said to her in Aramaic, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around, and she was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished, but he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Jairus had originally asked Jesus to put his hands on this little girl so that she would be healed. And Jesus takes this daughter by the hand and resurrects her from the dead. And this is why I continue to follow Jesus, not only because of his resurrection power, but because of his power in renaming people. Just like last week when Clyde and Kim shared their experience of being renamed as children of God, and just like many of you have had that experience of being renamed. I have personally named the depression, anxiety, shame in my own life, and that has been powerful, um, a very helpful therapeutic tool in my life. But it has been the gentle power of Jesus who has called me out of isolation and has been the gentle power of Jesus who has continually reminded me of my own identity. My identity is not in what I do, how self-actualized I have become, or how much self-esteem I may or may not have. My identity is based on my renaming as daughter and remembering that I am profoundly and deeply loved child of God, and so can you. So this is my prayer for you and for me this morning. Today, O oh Lord, I accept your acceptance of me. I confess that you are always with me and always for me. I receive into my spirit your grace, your mercy, your care. I rest in your love, O oh Lord. I rest in your love. Amen. Um, for people who don't know me, um, my name is Gary. Um, when Ben asked a few of us uh, what our favorite Jesus story was, I felt, to me, the question felt a little bit like a trap because it doesn't feel like a, a question where you, you should have a, a favorite story. Um, for today, I've chosen a story that speaks to me and which I think um, has some elements which are sometimes partially overlooked, which is Luke, verses, Luke 4, verses 1 through 21. This passage contains two stories which give us clues about how Jesus sees the relationship between the powerful and the powerless. Um, I'll read the entire passage and then talk through how I see good news in these stories. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you, I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. and." On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. 
Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In the first story, Jesus turns down dinner, power over kingdoms, and refuses to make a move against God the Father rather than worship the devil. On the surface, this looks absurd. What does the devil really have to offer God? In the moment, though, Jesus could have saved himself a lot of trouble, pain, fear, and anxiety. He had a choice between being hungry or full, and he chose hunger. The story tells us that Jesus won't abandon us for a loaf of bread or for all the money in the world. The story gives us a glimpse of what it means to be more like Jesus. He exercised his strength to stay the course on his journey to the cross, and ultimately we're the beneficiaries. In the second passage, Jesus speaks directly to the vulnerable. It is for them that he brings good news, and if we, exploit, if we were to exploit vulnerability, we would step into judgment. Here he reads from Isaiah saying he came to bring good news to the poor, and then asserts that it is fulfilled as he reads it. I find this passage unsettling. Um, I live a pretty comfortable life, so when Jesus says he came to proclaim good news to the poor, I have to acknowledge that I'm not materially poor, although I think um, in this passage he does talk about healing, which most of us can also appreciate, whether we're, regardless of our station. Um, this gospel is holistic, and I think that the passage binds together the charismatic and justice-oriented subcultures within the church and calls those groups of people to work together. I think when Isaiah was written, I suspect that the hearers would have connected freedom for prisoners and the oppressed with the Exodus story. While it's tempting to spiritualize that part of the passage, there are a lot of people today who can legitimately pray for God, to God for freedom from imprisonment. A famous um, example of someone who kind of fits this model is that of a young man named Khalif Browder, a man who was accused of stealing a backpack and went to, so he spent three years on Rikers Island, though never convicted of a crime. Um, and subsequently, the people who, the prosecutors dropped the charges against him. Um, similarly, in Pennsylvania, a few years back, we saw a judge take some kickbacks to send children to prison, and I think those children probably could have legitimately prayed for uh, freedom from imprisonment. Some churches like the Presbyterian Church USA, where I used to be an elder, have joined movements seeking to end cash bail, which seems to inflict an undue burden on the poorest members of society. So in this, this passage, if you go back to Isaiah, after he says, after Isaiah says that he will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, in Isaiah, it continues on to say, that he will proclaim the, the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide those who for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow upon them a crown of beauty, instead of ashes, the oil of joy, instead of mourning, 
and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of God for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. What's striking about this continuation in Isaiah is that it talks about, it starts out talking about God's wrath, and that's a topic that I think is pretty uncomfortable for a lot of people. It kind of can be difficult to see how God can be both wrathful and loving, but imagine you saw someone bully a child, you would feel livid on behalf of the child, and the anger is doubly severe when you feel powerless to influence the situation involving someone you love. Um, when I was writing this, I discussed th this material with a friend who has um, left the church, and I think it, it bothers both me and her to see a hurting world where we struggle to see the hand of God at work sometimes. As tempting as a Christian to offer a cop-out, like that God has a plan and we just need to wait, or to say that we just don't have enough faith or don't pray hard enough. Um, but I wonder if we're meant to be part of God's plan, that is, to see a stranger welcome them, to give clothes to those who need them, and to visit those who are sick or in prison. If the plan, if God's plan is for us to try to be more like Jesus, to proclaim the good news of healing and restoration, to be healers and restorers, then this is good news to me because it means that we're freed from sitting on the sidelines watching people suffer and we're also freed from um, the toxic idea that we could be someone else's savior. Our wor world is full of stories of power struggles between the strong and the weak including oppressive systems, domestic and sexual abuse, and bullying. We all have opportunities to exert influence over other people, be it children, neighbors, and coworkers. This passage in Luke gives me hope because it means that Jesus left us some guidance on how God says that we should exercise the power that we have access to in a healthy way. In my job, I've interviewed probably somewhere between 150 and 200 people over about 10 years. So I've said yes or no to jobs for a lot of people. I know now most of the people in our office because of this, and I know a lot of the inner workings of the teams and the projects and things, and I have access that presumably could use, be used by my employer to exploit people in the office if they were to choose to do so, and probably the ability to avoid any consequences if my employer was to do so. So in that context, if I'm to be like Jesus in the first story, I should probably think about situations where I would want to turn down a promotion if it required a Faustian bargain on my part. If I'm to be like Jesus in the second passage, I could be an agent of healing and justice in the workplace, for instance, acting to prevent hiring discrimination or as an advocate for better healthcare options. In a world that cries out for justice, this passage is a ray of hope. While I can't see God's hand in everything, this tells me that God cares about vulnerable people and wants to free them from oppression. In order for the gospel to really be good news for the poor, it needs to be so big and so good that it is good news for an acquaintance of mine who grew up next to a member of the clan, the mothers separated from their children at the border, the families of Trayvon Martin, and my friend's children who are afraid that they or their parents, will, their parents will be next. What this text says to me is the Holy Spirit is more gentle and loving than we can imagine, stronger than we can dream, and empathizes with us in our grief, sadness, and rage. It says to me that Jesus won't abandon us for a loaf of bread or all the money in the world. All right. 
My name's Katina. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Ben asked uh, this question, our favorite Jesus story, and I don't follow directions very well, so I gave him two. <laughs> um, but I had never really thought about that before. Um, these are just two that really stood out to me. Um, the first one is Luke 7, which um, Jesus anointed a sin anointed by a sinful woman. Um, the second one, Mark 5, 1 through 20, is the story of the demon-possessed man who's in chains and naked and cuts himself and is a hot mess. And um, I'm like, what do these stories have in common? And I think that both of these characters, I want, I mean, I guess they're people, <laughs> They probably wouldn't want to be called characters. Um, <laughs> both of these people are desperate. Um, they're desperate for healing. And um, I think like in Aubrey's, like I can connect with that. That's something I can connect with. I can, um, I think as our, in our culture, we don't like to be desperate. We don't, we like to feel like we have it together. Everything's fine here. Um, let's not talk about, let's not bring me to tears. Um, everything's good. And these people, they are my people. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so that's why I think I picked these stories. So um, we'll just do Luke 7, um, 36 through 50. If you have a Bible, I'm going to read through it. Okay, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Um, when, a sin, when a woman who had lived a sinful life um, in the town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to him, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. <gasps> Gasp. Um, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but she has not uh, stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Um, yeah, I, I can relate to her because I've known desperation myself. And um, I think as Christians, there's a lot of pressure to never... We have answers. So, um, but somehow when I was in high school, about 20 years ago, um, I really lost myself. And I was a Christian and um, I was really depressed and suicidal and um, self-destructive. And there, people were quick to tell me who they saw me as. Like um, Simon, who is quick to define this woman um, as what just is so evident to everyone in the room. Oh, oh, but wait, look at her. She's a mess. You can't possibly accept anything from her. Like, I just love Jesus because he's like, no, no, I see things that you don't see. Like, I'm so amazing. <laughs> like, you're sitting here and you're so full of yourself and you think you know this person and you don't. Like, I just, I love him. I love him. So um, that's a little bit of a tangent. But um, I love how in verse 38, um, she weeps. And I can relate to that because I'm a weeper. <laughs> but this idea that she's standing behind him, and she is aware of how unworthy she is to do this crazy thing she's thinking about. <laughs> um, she probably has the jar in her hands and is like, how's he going to respond to this? How are the people in this room going to respond to this? But she's so moved by him that she loses sight of everyone else in the room. And she can't help herself to action. And I just, I picture her. I just picture her and I think what, what beauty, what confidence, what terrifying confidence she has. And she approaches him and she pours this oil out and he doesn't kick her away. And um, yeah, I just, I, I love him. <laughs> um, yeah. She, she, uh, she's moved to action. She stops caring what others think, and she only sees him and his love for her. Um, verse 39, it talks about Simon and how he sees her and how he wants to define her based on her past, based on her mistakes. And I think I have a tendency to think, that people are looking at me a certain way or making decisions about who I am based on my leopard shoes or my weight or the many, many flaws, my big mouth. <laughs> and I, um, when you're looking at what you think other people think, you, you quickly lose sight of who God says you are. And um, she doesn't do that. She doesn't do that at all. She, she is so in love with him and focused on adoring him that she forgets that there's other people in the room. I want to be her. I want to be that person. We're called to be that person. And I think that that's exciting <laughs> and scary all at the same time. Um, 
one commentary that I read said that she had possibly bought that oil um, as a prostitute to get higher paying clients. And the idea of her pouring that out and saying, I no longer want that past. Like this is, like once I pour this oil out, I'm not getting it back in that jar. Like my, my, my job, it's not my job anymore. Like you have so radically changed who I am that I can't even identify with that. And I'm pouring this extremely valuable thing out at your feet. Like, yeah, that's so, I would love to see that. I would love to see that today. And it makes me wonder what would that look like for us to do that today? Like I can't kiss Jesus' feet. Like he's not, I don't see him. Like I know we say he's here, but I can't do that. And so like, what does that look like in this year, in this time? And I, I so feel like what he's saying is it looks like surrender. It looks like pouring out all of the labels that we have defined ourselves as that are no longer who he sees us. Taking those bottles and smashing them at his feet and anointing him and saying like, it's yours all of it, every little bit, even the stuff that was a mistake, it's yours. Like do something amazing with this because without you, it's messy, it's ugly, I'm nothing. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I have to say. Like my, my hope and my dream for us is that we become people of surrender, like this woman who risks it all, who lays it all down, who pours it out and says like, you radically redefine me. And that's so exciting. And that's such an amazing part of, it is the gospel. It is the gospel. So um, yeah, so I would like to, I don't actually, I would not like to get on the floor in front of all of you and pray a prayer of surrender, but I feel called to do that. And so I'm going to do it. (laughs) But if anyone else would like to join me, you're more than welcome to get on the floor and pray a prayer of surrender with me. And if that is out of your comfort zone and you wanna do that at home on your yoga mat where it's a little bit safer, do it. Because I've learned this thing that when you lower yourself, he delights in lifting you up. And I see that in, in this verses 44 and on. It's like he's so delighting in this sacrifice. And he's like bragging about this woman at this, at this dinner. He's like, look what she's done for me. Like, I want him to do that over us. Like, I believe he can and he will and he does. And I'm rambling, so here we go, let's do this. <laughs> Dear Father, you are so worthy of our praise. You are the only God that can take the mess of our lives and redeem it. I pour out my hopes and my dreams, my passions and my concern, I pour them out all over, (laughs) on the floor and on your feet, and I pray that you will do a mighty work in us and through us and for us, for our community and for our church. And I pray that you will take all of these things right now that are being left at your feet, 
and that you use us, that you will delight in us, that you will brag about us at parties, about how we've so lavishly loved you and held nothing back. You are so beautiful. The fact that you, the God of the universe, would allow yourself to be anointed for burial by a sinner just tells us who you are, how humble and beautiful and worthy you are. You are so good. I pray that you just pour your spirit out on us today as we go. Um, May we be women and men who live boldly for your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of The Renew Community. This in no way should replace the formation within a community of Jesus followers. If you are looking for a church, would like more information about Renew, or would like to give financially to this ministry, check out our website at renewcommunity.org.